Welcome to Hot Plate, the conversations we should be having about our food and drink. I'm your host, Mirella Amato. Today on Hot Plate, we discover beer history with the curator of the upcoming exhibit, Toronto Brews, Two Centuries of Beer Culture in the City. So, Joshna, episode 15. Episode 15. How about a little high five for episode 15? Yes. Thanks. Nice. Very exciting to be here. <laughs> and we have a fantastic guest in the studio with us today, Wayne Reeves. Hello, Wayne. Hello there, Marilla. Welcome. And Thank Wayne you. is <clears throat> the chief curator for City of Toronto Museums and Heritage Services. Wayne, it's a solid job title. And you've been doing this for over 10 years, right? It's been a gig for a decade. So it involves working with artifacts, working with exhibits. The City of Toronto, believe it or not, runs 10 community museums. And we try to bring some really interesting programs and exhibits uh, to have uh, folks return time and time again. Yes, and actually Wayne and I go back quite a bit, I think more than 10 years. Mm-hmm. And mm. we did we meet at CABA? We either met at CABA or when we were doing a BJCP training session. Which would have been through CABA. Probably through CABA. Yes, yes. so CABA is yeah. the Canadian Amateur Brewers Association. I was ask, thank you. Okay. And yes, Wayne and I are both active judges. And then sort of at the same time, which is very interesting, I was on the board for one of the City of Toronto museums, the Todd Morden Mill. You know, oh, the one yeah, that's for sure, near, right by the Brickworks? Yeah, with that big... Mm-hmm. Uh, Big. Is it a chimney? Can yeah, I call it's a it a chimney? chimney? Yep. Okay. And that site happens to have a historic brewery. So they thought it would be good to have me on the board uh-huh. to create some sort of beer-centric events. So here I am at this board meeting, and someone announces, oh, there's a new chief curator for the city of Toronto. His name is Wayne Reeves. I was like, wait a sec. <laughs> is that like my beer-judging buddy? And sure enough. Correct. It was. So I brought you in today, Wayne, because there's an upcoming exhibit called... <clears throat> I'm, I'm going to clear my throat every time I read from the paper I like now. It. I like it a lot. Toronto Brews, Two Centuries of Beer Culture in the City. Mm -hmm. And that's starting in uh, July? July 13th at the Market Gallery, which is perched above St. Lawrence Market, the South Building. So tell me, what inspired this particular exhibit? I would say my staff inspired it because they've been pestering me for years to say, we need to look at the history of brewing, beer drinking in Toronto. And um, the more people I talk to outside of my staff, thought it was a great idea. Um, there's been a few other exhibits around Ontario over the last few years. But, you know, Toronto is the navel of Canada. And therefore, <laughs> uh, to look at such a, an incredibly huge beer market um, over the course of 200-odd years seemed like a great idea. And there's a, I mean... There's a lot of things. I don't know if you know all the things, Joshna. I I did some events that were centered around the beer history of Toronto. Right? So things like, for example, Bloor Street was named after a brewer. Whoa, no. I, I had no idea of this. Joseph yes. Bloor. Bloor's Brewery. Joseph Bloor. <laughs> Bloor's Brewery. Oh, man. And there's a whole, uh, I did um, a huge exploration of temperance, you know, the yes. teetotalers. I have heard this. And yes. there's buildings with like the Christian Women's Temperance Union emblazoned on them that you can easily miss. And uh, Massey Hall was created in part to promote temperance values. So the the history of beer, I think, is is everywhere Absolutely. in Toronto. We yeah. just don't and you're, notice it. Even if you're not a beer drinker, it was the part of the, the life fabric for, for so many Torontonians. 
you know, they started off in the 19th century going after whiskey, and they thought, oh, beer is an acceptable substitute. But later on, as we got closer to what became prohibition in Ontario in 1916, mm-hmm. all alcohol was off the table, including beer. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of things we might see or learn in this exhibit? Well, we can wanted you give us to give some teasers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, in fact, we're, we are going to run a number of um, programs on the side, and we will offer temperance teas um, to talk about uh, anti-booze, uh, anti-beer movements uh, from the 1830s onwards. Love that. So uh, some of our events will be served with alcohol, some will not be, but everything will, will still have a, a beer theme. So essentially, um, as one wag uh, put it when I explained uh, the exhibition to him, he said, oh, I get it. It's from Robert Henderson's to Henderson's Brewing. And basically running over 200 years from 1800 when Toronto's first brewery was set up, right down to today and the whole rise of uh, the craft beer market. And in between, we want to look at some of those huge industrial structures um, some of which you can see evidence of today, like the Dominion Brewery on Queen Street. Um, we take the story through Prohibition, which really disrupted the whole um, brewing industry. We look at the rise of um, uh, Canadian Breweries Limited. That was E.P. Taylor's global beer empire based here in Toronto. Yeah, doesn't and, that building uh, still have hops and the, oh, the malt on it? It's in the on the Ryerson campus, and you look up, and the building has hops and and what, uh, really? barley on it. Yeah, it's I the am so glad you know Chang it. School, it's now the it? Chang School, but it has some oh, of the yes. most humble... having worked on that campus. Yeah. I know exactly the building you're talking. Look about. Look up next time. It's okay. right there. It's crazy. Carved cool. above the doorway, and I would say it's probably the most. Oh, I have wondered because it looks like a plant. Obviously, and the the food services person inside of me had questions about these origins, but now I know that it's hops. Oh, I love that hops and barley. Thank you right? and so, barley. No slight to the barley. And I believe there's some water pouring off the roof, carved in stone. I think everything is represented, but yeast uh, in terms of the the classic ingredients. Oh my god, that's so great. Mm-hmm. So it went up, you know, it was a, it, at the end of the Art Deco period around 1939. Right? But again, that's how E. P. Taylor. After buying up all these small Toronto breweries, he went national and then he went global. Um, And it was all headquartered out of that premises on uh, Victoria Street in Toronto. The the history is, it is fascinating. And um, I mean, this isn't necessarily Toronto specific, but various things you learn when you geek out about beer, like uh, the fact that refrigeration uh, basically grew quickly because the beer industry needed refrigeration mm-hmm. and like you know a lot of firsts this, that can be attributed to beer a thing right yeah. that's so interesting beer well, will accelerate many things because it's delicious <laughs> and the key lubricant in toronto refrigeration was really important but until the 1870s we had limited drinking water it was impure it was insufficient quality it was a private water franchise that finally oh. the toronto city council buys out this company in the early 1870s. And I think that explains the rise of these gigantic brewing um, uh, uh, complexes. Because suddenly, uh, you know, the key, by volume, the the, the key ingredient to beer, um, it's like an element of supply. And uh, you see these huge complexes rising across the city. So what kind of items might be in this 
exhibit? It's going to be an artifact-rich uh, exhibition. Cool. At least 250 objects, probably another 50-odd images. And, um, you know, Texas for Books, uh, what we want to do is sketch out some of the big periods of, of brewing and, and beer culture development in the city. But, um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we acquired um, a watercolor from about 1803. And what's fantastic is not only is it rare and valuable, but it depicts one of the earliest taverns in the town, Cooper's uh, Toronto Coffee House. And yeah, okay, it had coffee in the title, but it was really a place to go and drink beer. Hmm. And there it is on this uh, beautiful view of of the town of York, uh, circa 1803. And so we're super excited to have a new acquisition come out. But you, you can imagine there's going to be um, glassware, uh, lithographs, mm. uh, coasters. I was going to ask all, all that kind coasters. of coasters. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of Brianna. How sweet. Yeah. But, um, you know, Morella was talking about having uh, worked on the, uh, the board of management for Todd Borden Mills. We actually have uh, William Hellowell's diaries from the 1830s. Um, and so they'll be on display. And it, all this cool stuff about the roads were in terrible shape, but he would still hitch up his horse and wagon and go up in the Oak Ridges Moraine, down to Oakville, over to Pickering, looking for <laughs> his empty barrels and trying to settle accounts. And you can imagine. Wow. Uh, so nothing's changed. N- nothing, nothing's <laughs> really changed. So it's just the QEW yeah. now. That's the difference. <laughs> Absolutely. But um and that was one of the great discoveries for me reading through these diaries. I thought he was basically selling to an ultra-local market. But, oh, no, brewers have always had ambitions from day one of selling Surely. way beyond York or Toronto. Yeah. As it is now. That's fascinating. That is really fun. Because back in the day, if you're, if you're riding a buggy or an animal, Oakville is far. Well, and again, we're, talk, <laughs> right? we're talking sloppy mud roads for right. much of the year. So it, it would have been a painful experience. And again, it, it explains why bottling took off so late in Toronto, hmm. because once you start jostling glass around in, in your uh, in your wagon, it's going to break. So you really want to be in the barrel business until you've got right. decent roads, quite frankly. Oh, that's cool. I'm really interested myself. Okay, this is really interesting, though, because I have been, uh, through this conversation, what I'm thinking is there's like there's so many beautiful details about brewing that seem to be historically, at one point, they were just woven into regular life. But then pro- something as dramatic as prohibition just really severs those connections, right? And obviously, food is the thing that I pay attention to, and we didn't necessarily have a moment like prohibition. But the idea that something happened to distance people from what once was a very close daily cultural thing, it sounds like we now, how many years uh, after Prohibition, are starting to, you know what I mean? And the craft beer movement has opened up those reconnections. These are things that we were very regular, easy things without worry, you know, without the sort of concern that shrouded Prohibition. And that to me is really compelling. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I can't think of anything else that, you know, in food and drink that's been so disruptive as right, Prohibition. Right, this is exactly it. You know, um, we have kind of regular strength beers now at about 5% right. alcohol by volume. During Prohibition, you could not um, sell beer that was more than about 1.4%. Oh, and really you're saying, okay. well, okay, that sounds kind of small. But, you know, just, uh, you know, a couple of nights ago, I had a Bose Rattler. 
2.5%. Mm-hmm. I had two. I didn't get even a buzz. Right. And so, uh, again, that, mm-hmm. that, that notion about, well, it's sort of like drinking water with a little bit of malt in it. Yes. Um, basically for a decade. And then um, that was the brewing side. But in terms of public culture, um, there were no bars uh, open after mm. Prohibition was lifted in 1927 until 1934. And then there were these hideous things known as beverage rooms. No dancing, no music, no entertainment, no loud talking. You could not get up and move with your drink. Because <laughs> you might punch someone. Well, <laughs> Hashtag no good times, right? No good times. Wow. And, and so it was a very um, uh, austere approach that you know made you basically feel guilty that you were going to leave your home and go out right. into public. To stand quietly in public and no. just take down a beer? No. There, was no bar- there were no bars. You, could, you had to sit at a table. Oh, so in that's why I need room. to correct you. Is like so the whole saloon culture where you would stand and 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 stand your buddy a beer at the bar, uh, that was all gone as of 1916, and and so it undercut, um, uh, for better or for worse, a really important aspect of masculine culture, um, not just in Toronto but across Canada, hmm. um, across North America when prohibition came into the states later on, um, but it really changed how people interacted in public. And, and so it wasn't just about the beer. It was about the sociability that changed. Yep. Some also, of no you, women around. Uh, allowed or ooh, is that ooh, not true? This is I'm the, interested in the gendered angle. This is the break. Yeah. Um, okay. Saloons were, were male preserves. Women were not supposed to drink or even go into saloons. You were a loose woman if you went into a saloon. Right. And so to counter right. that, uh, after Prohibition, the Ontario government... Uh, required that all hotels that had beer parlors had a men's entrance and a ladies and escorts entrance so that <laughs> unaccompanied women could go into one side or, or uh, uh, you know, a man and a woman together could go on that side. But an unescorted woman could not go into the men's side of the beer parlor. And again, this was all about morality, the, the mm-hmm. sense that uh, single women uh, mixing it up with men must be a hooker. Yeah. And uh, even though I, I said, like, I'm making light of, of it. Questionable morals, regardless. Yes, absolutely. And, yes. and, and quite frankly, that was the way they framed it about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, questionable morals. But wait, didn't women work in these places? They did not work. They weren't servers, except uh, possibly uh, in the ladies and escort service uh, side. Uh, so, but I yeah. feel maybe is that an American notion of the saloon and the woman with her sort of heaving bosom? And with her with fistfuls of jugs of beer, where's that well, coming in the, from? In the saloon days, that was true. But what I'm talking about is after prohibition, uh-huh, um, okay. it was males who acted as servers. Okay. And uh, again, you would think that uh, the female influence would be beneficial to regulating morality in some ways, um, but the Ontario <laughs> government thought otherwise. And so we have these horrific images of the saddest looking men and men and women drinking in the, these beer parlors. And, and, and this held from 1934 until the early 1970s when... Oh, it lasted that incredible. long? Yes. Uh, we I, drank miserably we for drank that long? very miserably before we got music, before you could stand up, before you could have entertainment uh, in those rooms. Wait a minute. So, okay, you say early 70s? That's right. So that means that it's like... Maybe 50 years since we had, like, considering what happens in bars now. It's a long, long unwinding of the, those 
uh, layers of regulation. Now, I'm talking about beer parlors, and again, that's all you could drink in those places. Ontario got cocktail lounges in the, the late 1940s, so things were a little bit different. Men and women could mix uh, and could mix with mixed drinks. So it was a little bit different, but um, you know, the rules for all these different types of establishments, um, they're all different. But if you were interested in beer until the 70s, you were really out of luck. That's so counterintuitive. So if you're drinking something highly alcoholic— it's okay for men and women to be together and to stand up and so on. But if you're having something that's just a, a moderate beverage, then it has to be... It's interesting to me because this... I mean, we still have this notion that beer is you know, linked to hooliganism, is mm-hmm. linked to mm-hmm. being less healthy. Right. And uh, clearly this predates those times because in those they're, times they're already clear beer class was lines more in message, right? heavily yeah. regulated. Oh, you think it's class? I think, I think <gasps> it's class stuff, uh, right? I agree. So the That's cocktail lounges, you know, they had dress codes. Right. So these were right. seen, so the drinks were more expensive. Um, it was a very sophisticated environment and therefore, yeah, it was ridden with class no, issues. That's what I'm thinking. Wayne, there was one last thing uh, I was very curious about and wanted to talk to you about while you're here. I'm sure you've heard of this woman. I don't know if you know, Joshna, but the Smithsonian Museum mm-hmm. in the U.S. has hired a woman as a, her title is Curator of Brewing History. So her role Ooh. is within the food department to, um, similar, I guess, to, to Wayne's job, to record and, and collect your history, but what I find especially interesting about her position, and it makes sense because it's partially funded by the Brewers Association, is she's been told to focus on post-1960. Okay. And a lot of what she is doing right now is documenting the craft beer movement. So interviewing all of the people who started the craft beer movement in the U.S. who are still alive today doing live interviews, collecting um, artifacts and and various items. And it's very interesting to me, this self-awareness of knowing this is history and it is alive and we are living it and we need to document this for the future. And I was wondering, Wayne, is this something you're seeing across the board that people are becoming very aware of saving things? Or is this something that's always... there's a... There's a parallel with the historic preservation movement around architecture and the modernist movement. Hmm. So lots of great buildings over the last 50 to 60 years are being lost because they're considered not to be history. History is what happened in the 18th century, the 19th century, before Prohibition. And as a result, there's that cultural amnesia about um, the recent past. So we're trying to correct that in Toronto Bruce because, again, we've got that arc going 200 years from 1800 right up to the present. Mm-hmm. And so we do tell the story of the rise of the craft, uh, or, well, it was called the microbrewery movement, um, started in Toronto in 1985 with Opera Canada Brewing Company. Um, but, you know, I've, I've had so many painful uh, discussions with people in the brewing business who said, you know what, um, I had all the recipes, all the records for Connor's Brewing, um, which was both in Mississauga and in North York in the in uh, the late eighteen sorry nineteen eighties early nineteen nineties, mm-hmm. and uh, the guy who works at Henderson's said, "I was down in my basement. Was I going to turn it into a rec room for my kids or hang on to all this stuff? I don't think anyone's interested in this, so it was <gasps> all pitched. So now oh, what, what we're trying sadness. to do is, is 
talk about the value of recent history that hold on to your records, hold on to your objects, hold on to the first glass that you, the first branded glass that came out of your brewery. Um, uh, so in Toronto Brews, thanks to um, uh, the, the work at Great Lakes Brewing, they have actually saved quite a few of their records. I have a fantastic recipe for orange peel ale from 2006, which will help people understand just how complex the, the grain bill or the ingredient list is for uh, some of these really funky, mm-hmm. interesting beers like, like orange peel ale. But again, I can't show that object if people don't preserve it. Um, and so I know recently that there's been quite a push among the Ontario uh, Craft Brewers Association to um, preserve some of those records and, and objects uh, tied to those more recent um, brewing uh, actors. I love that. I think that's it's super fascinating. And parallels with the food world are clear and obvious, right? I get really panicky about the generations that are passing away without their recipes being recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what this is also telling us, though, is that this is a pivotal moment in beer history. Yes. Right? That's the thing. Right now, this moment and what we're doing is interesting and different, and that is super fascinating. And the, the great thing is there's so many people that are out there now. 1800, the year 1800, there was one brewery in Toronto. Um, uh, early in 1985, there were three. They were massive. So now, hmm. you know, uh, Molson, Labatt, Carlin O'Keefe. Today, I counted it up in, in 2019, 57 bricks and mortar uh, breweries in Toronto, plus another 20-odd contract Brewers. 57 in the city? 57 just in the city of Toronto alone. Whoa. So, Wayne, for people who are interested in coming to the exhibit, where can they find information? So, Toronto Brews opens July 13th at the Market Gallery. So, that's the second floor of the South St. Lawrence Market Building. We'll have lots of information online about it. Uh, just, just search City of Toronto Museums. Um, the show runs until December 28th. So, you know, you can... Um, Take whatever time over the next few months to, to come on down to um, St. Lawrence Market to see us. Um, there will be many um, beer-related programs, so tastings with small brewers, um, food and beverage events in the, the market kitchen, which is uh, attached to the, the market gallery. It's going to be a wonderful time over the next uh, few months. Fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait. Fantastic. Thank you. Joshna, what you got? Okay. Uh, Very exciting. I found uh, local magazines written a piece about the best sandwiches in the city. And uh, I have a lot of excitement about this, mostly because I love a good sandwich. I think, a sa- I think a sandwich is a really sort of perfect thing, right? A package of all, deli- I mean, made well, obviously. Um, I think the sandwich is amazing. But there are some interesting entries that I'd like to talk about. Okay. And then I'd like to talk about what actually makes a good sandwich. Okay, I have some opinions right? about Which that I as feel well. I had an idea mm. that you would. So first all of right. all... Best sandwiches. Uh, cle- there are 50, 50 of them. So and were they ranked? They were ranked. Okay. They were ranked. And within the sort of top 10, interesting notes. One is Porchetta & Co. Have oh, you ever had one of those? Pureness. Well, Porchetta in general it's is really a pure sandwich. Best, right? Yeah. And what, the, what Nick and the team does over there is they put, you can have an option with garlic rapini. 
on the thing, much like, you know what I mean, the veal sandwich lore, which yeah. that plus the bit of crackling, I really think makes for an exceptional sandwich. Pork and the rapini is my favorite combination. Oh, God, yes. On the planet. It's really wonderful. You can put it in a bun, put it on a pizza, put it on spaghetti. I don't yeah, care. Yeah, with pot. Exactly. Yes. Next up, I love uh, in the top 10, a note for Rose's Banh Mi. So Rose's is this little Vietnamese sandwich shop on Girard in, in Chinatown East. Okay. It is, yeah, on Girard, uh, on the south side, just east of Broadview. Been making the same banh mi the exact same way forever and ever and ever. So that is a very classic, perfect banh mi joint, and I'm delighted that they got a nod. And banh mi, I feel, had a moment a couple of years ago where it appeared on a number of restaurants. And I remember the first time I I saw it, the name, I didn't know what it was was right i had had many <laughs> yeah 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 but, but didn't i know just that's did, what you were eating didn't know right can you so are there specific items that define a banh mi or is it well they are i feel like there's a there's a, I mean, obviously there's a lot yeah, of opinion it's a complex. uh it seems to me though one of the things that i think is most that i think is key is um to spread uh pate Pate. On the inside of the bun, right? Because it, the banh mi is is sort of a beautiful example of that French influence in Vietnam, right? right. First of all, it's that crusty loaf. Second, there's uh, always pickles too. Some some a pickled. There's pickled daikon and carrots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, coriander is used as the salad greens. The perfection of it coriander. is right, yes. and then to me. That tiny, tiny chop of chili that just gets scattered in as a complete surprise. Right. So to your point about the the sort of uh, other versions and the excitement of other banh mi joints opening up to my great dismay, I have found like pickled jalapenos and just other really sort of garish things that completely lose the beautiful uh, the delicacy of that, those little hot bombs that just surprise. That's a good banh mi is the heat that comes and you don't know it's coming. So it's wonderful that this classic banh mi joint made the list. That's great. Uh, Another curious entry is that the Black Camel. So the Black Camel is just off of Young Street near Rosedale Subway Station. Okay. Right? Famous for brisket sandwich, just just hardcore warm meat sandwiches, right? Roast chicken, Mm -hmm. uh, pastrami, you know, smoked meat, all of that. Yet the inclusion of the Black Camel sandwich on this list was their roasted veg. Hmm. Which I thought was extraordinary. A place famous for their big meat sandwiches is, in fact, being recognized for their glorious vegetable sandwich. I I do feel, though, that whoever was putting together the list was highly aware that they had to put some vegetarian options mm-hmm. on there. Curious. Um, it, I I think you're totally right. It's just it sort is, of laughable that they... Vegetarian sandwiches, it is a challenge. It is it, a huge it's challenge. It's a, a challenge not to just, you know... Uh, put in some roasted veggies and cheese and call it a vegetarian that's sandwich exactly to make it. it a special experience, I think is yep. a challenge. So I'm guessing that's a good one. It's, it sounds like it's going to be, it's a great one, right? Um, and then uh, it's no it's no surprise that number one is in fact a proper good classic Italian veal sandwich. Ah. <laughs> right? <laughs> it is not I a surprise. Yeah. Right? Uh, and the thing that I think about a lot, like I was starting to think about the the origins of the sandwich mm-hmm. right with this uh, poker game and the earl of sandwich being very hungry for roast beef and whatnot yet wanting his hands clean for the cards is that a true story that's this is the true this is the truth wow. playing poker earl of sandwich hungry so ordered 
the essentially the fixings of a roast dinner, but asked them to put it in some bread so his hands could be clear to pick the thing up and then go back to the cards. And then other people, other dudes, who am I kidding, around the table, mm -hmm. saw this and said, I'll have what sandwich is having. That is, and that is where, right? So the I had heard that, but I didn't know if it was it's true. It's a great little bit, wonderful, with the notion that the sandwich is really to keep your hands clean, as opposed to the pocket, like the the samosa or the empanada, which is about traveling. Okay, right? That's about lunch on the go, wrapped in dough, meat mm -hmm. pies, all of that. The sandwich is just about keeping your hands clean, which I think is super great. Uh, and and I think in almost every situation, uh, the bread must be minimal. Ah, interesting. Right? I do not want to eat a sandwich that's just a bunch of bread. That's right? true. That's off-putting. Which is simply why. I mean, uh, the, the muffaletta is the perfect example because you stop to yank out some of the, the soft inside. So you really just hold the bread as the crust mm -hmm. that keeps that glorious sandwich together. Nice. Right, which is that to me makes sense. So while we're on it here, clearly mm -hmm. we've understood how the bread needs to be. Yeah. What else? What else needs to happen in a sandwich? I am loud uh, a lot about uh, dry no dry corners. <laughs> I think you've mentioned that before. I said this is not the first time me and the dry corners. Uh, right. So f all fillings spread to the furthest reach of the bread. Yes. So that every bite of that sandwich is full of each ingredient and pleasing. Yes. So I think beyond to all to all the corners, I, yeah. I agree. The second piece you said, you just kind of snuck it in there, mm -hmm. but it's equally as important is each bite has to be the same. Yes. So not only does it have to spread out to the corners, but within that, it's so disappointing when, you know, one of the ingredients is popped off to the side and you yeah. eat halfway through the sandwich and then suddenly something's missing. Or you bite it and the whole bit drags out in <gasps> your mouth. Are there ways to avoid that, though? Uh, I think it's about the way the things are cut up. Things should okay. be cut and placed in a sandwich in a way that facilitates an easy, smooth bite. I also think the other piece that's important is textural variety. Yes. You throw, yeah, right? throw some vegetables in there, please. Forgot. Something yes. crunchy. Yes. Something bright, something crunchy, briny. Like that's why pickles are such a great compliment mm. to fatty meat sandwiches, right? Yes. Uh, make it interesting. I, I don't want a sandwich that just has one thing in it. I'm very, uh, I'm a bit of a purist. So I like, you know, vanilla ice cream. If uh -huh. I'm making pasta, I like it to be uh, a zucchini pasta or a tomato pasta or, you know, a uh, uh, rapini and sausage pasta, but I'm not that keen on 50 ingredients in my oh, pasta. Okay. Um, if I'm having something, you know, one sauce is good, but if there's tons of sauces, not so great. And what I was pondering on the way over here is sandwich is the one exception. I like tons of different flavors oh, in a sandwich. Okay. And I wonder if that's because the bread creates a buffer or... Maybe. The presentation of the sandwich is a thing, too. Because what I immediately am starting uh, wondering is when you eat a plate of food, like Thanksgiving dinner or some mm -hmm. like production of a meal like that, yeah. do you just eat... Like, do you eat through all of the potatoes and then all of the meat and then all of the stuffing? How do you approach yes, that plate? And in order of preference, so I'll save the thing I like best for, for last. End. With some some exceptions, sometimes I really enjoy the textural interplay. So I'll I'll have two things that I like going back and forth. You know, just because you know, if, if there's something a little richer on the plate and something crisp on the right, plate, like I'll a, go back right. and forth. If I don't have a beer to cleanse my palate, <laughs> yeah. to to play the. The crisp note there. Alternatively, I am the person who forks and knifes a little bit of every item on the plate onto each mouthful. Huh. 
right? So you start yes. with potentially the piece of meat and then potato, a little bit of veg, a little bit of sauce on the tip. I want every one of my bites to have all, like I want it all together in my mouth. That's yeah. really fascinating. Huh. And that, that's that's a lot of my all fillings, all the flavors, everything all at once. That's it, my vibe. It makes sense then that you're so obsessed with sandwiches. Because that's what sandwiches are about. <laughs> that's exactly it. There's oh. stacks of mouthfuls, right? Waiting to be waiting to be bitten. Joshna, I came across actually two different mentions recently of a new beer phenomenon that I am not crazy about. Oh, okay, tell me. And it is Essentially, you know bubble tea? Of course. With the tapioca balls. Big straw, yep. And, oh, yes, the big straw. That's not <laughs> That's forget. Not, we can't forget um, the big straw. Which I think is straw. also called boba. Yes, I think you're right. It started, I think, in Japan. And they have created this thing called tapioca the next tapioca beer. Tapioca the next. Amazing. Fancy. And what it is, clearly, is putting tapioca balls into beer. And more egregiously from my perspective than, of course, because it's it's bubble tea, flavoring yeah. the beer. I was wondering if so, a shot of syrup would follow the the, the tapioca balls. Okay. It does come in regular, but you can get strawberry, pineapple, or kiwi. Yeah. And I love bubble tea. Right. Love it. I actually, I make it at home. I learned how to make the tapioca balls. Stop. You make and your own tapioca yeah, balls? Yeah. My sister-in-law and I started geeking. So actually this year, started geeking out and comparing oh how we God. make it. And we found the perfect way to make them. Okay. And for my birthday, she gave me a whole uh, bubble tea set. So oh. I'm coming from a very pro-bubble okay, pro tea, pro tea position. stance. Yeah. But if you, and I understand that you, someone might want an alcoholic version of a bubble tea, but just throw some vodka in there. Like, oh, okay, so you, you, start with I mean, beer. you have a very strong... Tell me why you are so offended by the idea of beer being involved here. I think the reason I'm offended is because this is one of many examples where beer is used to make something that is not beer. So once you add the tapioca okay, balls okay, okay. and you have flavored it, there's nothing of the beer that is left. So why don't you just carbonate some bubble tea and throw in some vodka? That would be a bit oh, more I authentic. It's, it's in the same I line see. of all of those early quote unquote beer cocktails like the Michelada and whatnot, which were basically about taking a lager and drowning out its flavors with as many other ingredients mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. possible. It's not celebrating the beer in any way. It's it's killing. The, 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 it's eliminating the beeriness. Exactly. Of the beer is just what you're is what you're not excited about. Yes. I actually think it's a pretty great idea. Really? I I'm I'm really into it. And I have been hunting for where in this city I would go to taste one because I I actually would be really into it. I think that the carbonation of beer would lend itself perfectly to huh. maximum bubble in bubble tea. I think that it would fit. I don't think I'd be that excited about the flavor shot. Okay. I think I'd be inclined to just give me the tapioca and a beer, but I, and, and there is something a bit delicious about the idea of drinking a beer with a straw. See, that's another place where I get I'm hung up sure. a little bit. I'm, I'm, not, sure. I'm not sure about drinking beer with a, a straw. I've I, never I tried actually it. don't think it's the right way. I, you know what I mean? I think that it gets to, it's a lot like when you go to a stadium and you get the beer in that sippy cup. 
right, right. where they put the lid it's that it 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 aerates it it's too much head you know what i mean i think the same thing happens but Although with a larger straw and and know. with a shot of a tapioca ball i in my imagination of it sounds mm-hmm. actually quite delightful i am I am super into it, and I was re- I was really surprised at how strong the opinion, even including the opinion in our sound booth, uh, about how bad an idea this beer bubble tea is. Whereas I actually am like, oh, give me one of those. I'm into that. Huh. Uh, I'd love to try it. Well, uh, making tapioca balls is super easy. You <sighs> just, I think it's two parts boiling water, one part, no, it must be two parts tapioca flour, one part boiling water. You just roll it into balls and boil it. That's it. What, really? Super easy. So you form the balls and then boil them off? Yeah. Oh, and then a quick dip to Chinatown to get myself one of those straws. Do you know where to get those straws? Yeah. that's the only piece I'm missing on my bubble tea. Okay, my bubble tea set. So I don't think there is a place doing it in Toronto. I did find a place in LA called called Boba 7, and it's boba in all kinds of alcoholic beverages. Oh, I see. It's just a beer. far and wide reach of tapioca balls. And okay. As a cocktail application, I don't know. As a cocktail application, to me, it sounds really fun. I don't know why my back just wow, goes that's up so interesting. with the beer it, piece, but I think it's the yeah. flavor in the beer that yep. hurt my feelings. Yep, I, I, I believe that. In just a uh, plain beer, it could be cool. Maybe. And, and I'm distinctly unexcited about the. Why don't you just put some vodka in the tea? Oh. I'm not interested in that at all. Uh, but the idea of it being beer, I'm like, yeah, smart. That makes sense. So stay tuned. We will have a follow up. <laughs> I will make myself some tapioca balls. I will get myself that straw and we'll try it out and I'll report back. All right. We're going to try it Let out. Us know. It's on the list for our for our magical summer. I love <laughs> so it. So much homework. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying The Hot Plate, rate us or leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Hot Plate Pod. Follow me at Beerology on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And follow Joshna at Joshna Maharaj on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you to Joshna for joining us today. Hot Plate is recorded at Eggplant Picture and Sound Studios. Our audio engineer is Brad Tigwell. Original music by Dave Bell. Hot Plate is produced by Mirella Amato, that's me, and Dennis Coyne. That's a wrap.